true story of a small deed, maybe the kind of deed Trent talked about last week where you just make a small dent in the world. The deed was in the middle of a snow apocalypse. So nine years ago this month, so this would be the first few days of January 2007 and the last day or two of December 2006, Albuquerque had record snowfall. Uh, on that Friday, over 11 inches fell in the city of Albuquerque. It was an all-time record. Uh, it still stands today, of course, and it broke the previous record, which was 10 inches in one day, 47 years previous. That's how much snow fell. To show you how wise I am in planning my travel, uh, that happened to be that Friday of the snowfall, the third of three days in which I planned and did, in fact, attempt to move to Albuquerque from the state of Virginia. So, uh, and that was against my wife's counsel, by the way. She said, there's going to be a big blizzard. I don't think you should do it now. Oh, no. They don't get that much snow there except in the mountains. I'll make it fine. And we didn't. So we made it as far as Amarillo, Texas. I-40 was closed down, of course, on that Friday. Uh, I just saw snow kind of flurries, not really gathering on the ground. So I thought, we can make it. So I and my truck uh, and, and family and parents headed over state roads, got as far as, I can't call it a city, I don't know what you call it, but it's a really small place called Vaughn, New Mexico. The railroad used to go through there, maybe still does, like one or two hotels. Fortunately, we got one of the last rooms at the hotel. We had to hole up there for almost two days before we came into Albuquerque. So here's a picture of what it looked like when we pulled into the parking lot. Some of the snow had melted by Sunday, but you'll know that our parking lot usually doesn't have that much snow um, in it. Here's the point that I want to get to in this story. There was a guy uh, that lived five or six houses down from me, still lives there, on the road that we live on, that our house is on. He heard that a new family was moving in down the road this particular day. So he got his snow shovel, walked five or six houses up, shoveled our whole driveway. His name is Tom. He goes to church here, just happens to be a member here. Now, Tom didn't ask any preemptive questions like, should I do this? Or is there something in this for me? He didn't know me. And once the good deed was over, Tom didn't ask any questions like, okay, down the road, is there some recompense for this, you know, this hour or two that I spent getting sweaty and shoveling you know, multiple inches of snow off of my new neighbor's driveway? He didn't ask any of that. We're going to call this a Christian view of good deeds, one that doesn't ask questions ahead of time. And we'll contrast that with a Cretan view of good deeds, which will be pretty different. Cretan meaning somebody who lives on the island of Crete, which is where the churches are that Paul writes to in this letter when he writes to Titus, who is over those churches. Let's talk about the Cretans for a few minutes. Trent's already done this. I'm going to add a little bit to what he said uh, and review some of what he said. I want you to think of three words that start with the letter L when you think of the people that lived on the island of Crete. Now, keep in mind that in ancient times, there really was a corporate personality. There was a, a characteristic that people groups had. Uh, nowadays, with us being so transient and moving around so much, uh, it's like Trent mentioned, I think, in week one, it's not appropriate to say this people group has this characteristic. We get accused of racism when we do that, and probably rightly so. But in ancient times, you did have this uniformity. 
So what we see of Cretans may not be true of every person living on the island, but there really was a shared characteristic. So these are the three L words that I came up with, one or two you've heard from Trent. Cretans were liars, they were lazy, and they were limited in their giving. Let me explain each of those. Uh, Trent mentioned a little bit about lies in week one. There were three big things that Cretans lied about as a people group. One, they said that they were the first Greeks. In their view, they came up from underneath the earth, and the very first Greeks were on the island of Crete, and then they spread out from there, meaning they went from there to the island of Greece. Second, they said that Zeus came from the island of Crete. We learned that in week one. Third, the Cretans said that actually all of the Olympian gods and goddesses, at least the main ones, came from the island of Crete. In fact, they used to be men and women who were elevated to be gods and goddesses. So do you get this idea? We came from under the earth up to Crete, and then some of us were so good, we were elevated to gods and goddesses. This led to a lot of pride on the part of the Cretans, meaning they thought they were better than other people groups. So, number one, L, liars. Number two and three, second and third, they were lazy on what they would do for others, and they were limited on what they would give to others. Let me explain the laziness and the lack of giving uh, by talking for a minute or two about honor-shame. Honor-shame is a way that most of the world operates. It's a culture, a way of interacting with others. We actually don't do very much of that in our country, but in other parts of the world, it's massive. Now, honor shame has good aspects and bad aspects. Let me point out some bad aspects because that's what the Cretans were living in and um, exhibiting in their lives and relationships. In one kind of honor shame system, you only really care about people that can do good for you. So what's that gonna mean? You care about family, extended family, not just immediate family, and you care about the boss at work. Why? Well, they can do stuff for you. They can promote you or at least make sure there's a roof over your head and food on the table. So in this kind of honor shame, you're very much a part of an in-group, culturally speaking. And you don't care about strangers. Does that make sense? Because strangers can't do anything for you. In fact, in this kind of honor shame system, there are only one or two reasons why you'd ever do anything for a stranger, somebody you don't know. One is that you could put them in debt to you, meaning you do good for a stranger, but somebody you might see off and on, like a business down the street, and then a year later you can collect. When you're in need, you can go to that person and let them know they owe you. So that's one reason for doing something to a stranger. Another reason for doing something to a stranger would be to earn honor points with God himself. So maybe you'd think in this system, if I help a stranger that's a poor person, maybe like 30 times over the next three or four or five years, wow, that's gonna be good because God owes me. God's gotta do something good for me now because I've done so much of what God wants me to do. So not many reasons for helping people outside of your in-group. Now there are some, some good aspects to honor shame systems throughout the world. I don't have five minutes to kind of share some good things that happen in other cultures. I've painted a pretty bleak picture because that's the picture we see painted on the walls, figuratively speaking, of the homes and the businesses throughout Crete in the first century. So we're ready for Titus now. What does Paul 
going to say to Titus that he can say to the churches that have been planted on the island of Crete in that kind of context. Well, let's start reading. We'll do the first eight verses of chapter three together. So let me read, you follow along. Paul says, remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Verse three, for we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, we were slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But, in verse four, when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works of righteousness done by us, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy. And I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and are profitable for people. So here's a summary of that first section, those eight verses. Engage in good deeds, verses one through eight. This is the civic sphere of the world. So let me explain those two sentences just a little bit. Engage in good deeds is, is actually what Paul says in the middle of verse eight. So here's what he says in the ESV. Those who have believed God should be careful to devote themselves to good works. The word work, or sometimes it's plural, works or good works. Uh, in, in other translations, sometimes it's deed or good deeds. That word appears three times in these eight verses alone, which is quite a lot, really. In fact, the word work or deed appears nine times in the book of Titus. Well, Titus isn't that long of a book, right? Three chapters. So do the math. That's an average of three times per chapter. It's pretty frequent. In fact, there's only one other book in the New Testament in which this Greek word for deed or work occurs three times per chapter, and that's the book of James. So if you want to read about you know, good deeds or good works, James and Titus, those are your go-to books. Also, we looked at the term good works in verse 8. If you look back at verse 1, it's there as well. This passage is bookended by this idea of doing good deeds. It's at the end of verse 1, be ready for every good work. In verse 1, we're told to be submissive to the authorities around us. So this is the sphere of the world. Now, by world, we don't mean the globe or the earth as a planet, or all the nations. We don't mean China, half a world away from us. What Paul means is the world around us. So for the Cretans, this would have been the Roman Empire, and it would have been whatever Greek political structures the Romans left on the island of Crete when they took that over. So for us, again, don't think so much China or India or Asia. Think our country, the world around you that you interact with. So do you get the three spheres 
that Paul talks about in the book of Titus. Chapter one, what was that about two weeks ago? That was about the local church. Chapter two, I gave you a little reminder uh, about that. Chapter two is about the home and a little bit about the workplace as well. Here in chapter three, the world, meaning the world we interact with. Uh, The world outside of our church and our home and our workplace. So Paul says in verse one, be ready for every good work. What does he mean by that? I think he means two things. I think first, he means be inclined toward good deeds or good works. Wow, how do I be inclined? How do I have an inclination toward doing that? Well, we'll read about that in verse three. So hold on just for a few minutes. Second, I think that he means we don't hesitate. We don't ask honor shame questions like what's in it for me. Somebody's driveway needs to be shoveled, we get the shovel, we go and we do it, period. Let's look at verse two. Paul says, speak evil of no one, avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. Again, a contrast with this idea of honor, shame in the negative sense. Paul says that Titus needs to affirm to his churches that they not speak evil of anyone. Can you imagine some of the questions that come back from that? Well, what about people that blaspheme the name of Jesus? Can't I speak evil of that person? You know what Paul says? He says, no, speak evil of no one. And then look at the end of this verse, verse two. Show perfect courtesy toward all people. So you see how the all people goes with no one? Don't speak evil of anyone and try to do good for everyone. In other words, don't put some kind of screen or filter up. Hey, can this person do good for me? Are they part of my in-group? Are they potentially part of my in-group? Is there something I can get out of this? Okay, then I'll do something good for that person. Paul says, no, none of that stuff that culture tries to teach or influence you in. So the Christians should not establish an in-group culturally, meaning we're better than other people. And again, we'll find out pretty quick in verse three why that is so. So what's the Cretan view? I help people who help me. What's the Christian view? I help all people found here in Titus chapter three, verse two, as well as other places. So now we're ready for verse three. Verse three has a key word that starts the verse. And it's not a noun, which you think would be a key word like grace or deed or work or savior. It's not a verb like submit or deliver or praise. It's a little three-letter word, F-O-R. seems pretty unimportant, and yet it's critically important. This mini but mighty word starts us into a five-verse explanation of the gospel. We've already read it, but I'm going to read it again. So here are the five verses, the encapsulation of the gospel in Timothy or Titus chapter, two, chapter 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but because of his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, 
whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So what is one good reason, there are others, what is one good reason for doing good deeds? Paul says, it's the gospel. Every chapter in the book of Titus has an explanation or a proclamation of the gospel. In chapter one, it's in the first three verses. In chapter two, Trent went over that last week, it's in verses 11 through 14. Here's how verse 11 starts in chapter two. For the grace of God has appeared. That's the entry point into the encapsulation of the gospel in chapter two. Here in chapter three, it's verses three through seven. Also in each one of these, we've got a Greek word for appearing. Uh, we know this as the English word epiphany, which we're getting right from Greek. We're really pronouncing a Greek word when we say epiphany. Epiphany means appearing. So either that verb or a noun that it comes from that verb, we read about in these three passages. In chapter one, it's in verse three. The word of God was manifest. That means it came to us, it appeared. In chapter two, God's grace appeared. And even a second place, a little bit later in chapter two, Jesus himself appeared. And now here in chapter three, the goodness and loving kindness of God appeared. I think Paul's got a couple reasons for talking about appearing. Here's one of them. Remember the Cretan view of gods and goddesses. Paul's contrasting that or attacking it in two ways. One, Paul is saying there's one God, not many. More importantly, Paul is saying your view, if you're Cretan and, and not Jewish, or a Jew that migrated recently, but if you're from this island and you've, your family has been here for centuries, your view is that men and women became gods. They were elevated. The true, correct, real view, the truth in this universe is that one God became man. It's the opposite direction. There is one God, says Paul. There is one appearing, one epiphany, and that's God becoming man, Jesus Christ, to come and die for our sins. So look back at verses three through seven. What is the reason given that we should strive to engage in good deeds? Well, the reason, if you look at verse three, is that we were Cretans once ourselves and to a large extent probably still are because we know we're not perfect, that God is working on us through each month and year of our lives. So up to this point, you probably think, oh man, those Cretans, wow, they lied left and right. Apparently they were lazy, they were proud, they looked down on other people groups. That's pretty bad. And, and our implication is, man, I'm sure glad that's not me. And Paul says, you know what? You're wrong. That was you, and some of that stuff is still hanging on inside of you. So an understanding of the gospel is going to directly affect how we treat other people. Let me try to illustrate that with a story that a friend of mine told. So I've got a friend, pastor's in Texas. His name is Don. This is a story Don tells. I'll, I'll tell it as if I'm Don, at least for the first part of the story. In the early years of my ministry, 
There was a guy in my church. Maybe, maybe you've got a guy like this in your family or, or your workplace. His name was Billy. Now, Billy, when you got close to Billy, he kind of smelled, to be honest. There's a lot of B.O. It was very pungent. It's like he hadn't taken a shower in a whole week. Billy, his hair was very unkempt. His clothes, man, if you donated those to Goodwill, they'd throw them in a dumpster. That's, that's Billy. Um, and Billy would always want to come up and hug me. And, you know, worse yet, Billy would always want to talk to me and engage me. And, you know, I'm busy. It's Sunday morning. There's a lot going on. And I wouldn't mind if he had some good theological question, but you know what? Usually when Billy talked to me, it wasn't anything substantive at all. And so I got in the habit of avoiding Billy. So I'd see him at one end of the hallway, walking slowly in my direction. I'd find a way to head down a different hallway. And as Don tells this story, he said, one day after having this happen for like, I don't know, probably a year or so, Don was studying the gospel. Probably not in Titus chapter three, but something similar, some kind of a similar passage. He was studying the gospel. And Don didn't say that God spoke audibly to him. And Don doesn't even word it as if God said this to me in general. But this is what Don says. I imagined that if God would say something audible, he might say something like this. Don, you're my Billy. When you came to me for salvation, the stench from you was a thousand times worse than that, spiritually speaking, than that physical smell from, from the Billy at your church. When you try to talk to me, you usually don't have very substantively good things to say, wise things to say, but I don't turn my back on you. It's the very opposite. And in studying the gospel and what God had done for him, that changed everything. So the very Sunday after that day, when Don saw Billy at the end of the hallway, guess what Don did? Man, he walked straight toward Billy, gave him a big hug, locked eyes with them one-on-one, engaged him for a few minutes, and then wished him well as they went, each to their separate you know, duties that Sunday morning. And to this day, that's still what happens with Don. A proper understanding of the gospel changes the improper ways that we treat each other. So guess what your homework is? Not just this week, but always. Study and meditate on the gospel. You might say, Ron, I think I know the basics. It's substitutionary death. Um, I'm dead in my sins. I need Christ for forgiveness. I'm separated from God. Um, uh, I'm not just hurting, I'm dead, and I need to be brought back to life. Well, study more about that. Remind yourself of that. And there's so many things that happen as a result of you coming to Christ and believing in the gospel the person and work of Christ. So this is a good place to start, verses three through seven, this encapsulation of the gospel. In fact, let me give you two questions if you want some homework. One would be this, where else, aside from this passage, do we read about the pouring out of God's spirit? And I'll give you a hint, it's in the Minor Prophets. So find where in the Minor Prophets 
what Paul is thinking of when he's talking about the pouring out of God's spirit. And here's a follow-up question. To whom is God's spirit in that minor prophet poured out upon? Here's a second question. What does it mean in this passage that we read that one result of the gospel is that we become heirs with Christ? Wow, what does that mean? Do you mean that the gospel is more than forgiveness, as great as that is? And the answer, of course, is yes. There are a dozen things that result from the gospel, all that are good. So study those. Make a list of them. Being heirs with Christ is one of those. All right, we're ready for verse 8. Verse 8 says this. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are profitable and excellent for people. Now, what is the saying? Some translations have this saying. Well, it's what we just covered. Verses three through seven. That's the saying, this encapsulation of the gospel, this proclamation of what Jesus did and how it affects us. So Paul says, this saying, what I've just told you, this is truth. This is true. This is real. This is concrete. It's more real than the chair you're sitting in. It'll certainly last a lot longer. And one reason he talks about this is to contrast the gospel with what the Cretans were believing, at least before they became Christians, which was what? Myths around them in the culture that they lived. In fact, Paul says to Titus, insist on teaching these things, this saying that I've just given you, verses three through seven. So we get this clear impression that Paul is not saying to Titus, you know, remind your people about the gospel. I think once a year is fine because they kind of know it already. Just review it a little bit once a year. He's saying, this is what's true. This is what's trustworthy. This is what'll change our lives. Insist on teaching this. We might even imagine Paul saying, Once a week is not too often to talk about the gospel. What is one reason for talking about the gospel? It leads to good works. Now, hear me, and we've got to be careful here. We don't come to Christ to become better people, although that is a result of us coming to Christ. Let me say that maybe once or twice more using different words. We don't come to Christ saying, you know, I'm pretty good now, but I need to be better. So I'm going to view this as self-improvement. I've read somewhere in the New Testament that you're going to be better at good deeds and relating to other people, your wife and people out there in the world, um, if you believe in Jesus. So I want to add this Jesus into my life so that I can be a better person. That's not what salvation is. Salvation is I'm dead, I'm separate from God, I'm a rebel, and I need the blood of the cross to save me and forgive me of my my sins. However, coming to Christ with the humble spirit, recognizing the extent of our sinfulness, results in what we read about, that we treat other people better. So, Titus chapter 3, verse 1, let's go back and just do a little review of verse 1 before we go on. Verse 1 said this, remind them to be submissive to rulers and to authorities. Now, that's always a challenge in Christianity, right? Meaning, we obey our government, federal, state, and local, 
And yet, we envision times when our government might ask us to do something against Christ, in which case we would disobey. That was a tension felt in the first century. It's a tension felt today. I'll give you a quick example. When people enlisted in the Roman legions, they felt the tension if they were Christians right away. Why? Because every legion had a patron god or goddess, and you had to pledge your allegiance, your faithfulness to that god. So Christians would refuse to do that. How about an example from today? Well, I know a guy in our church, a member of our church. Uh, he's an obstetrician, an OB doc, and he takes care of high-risk pregnancies. So you can imagine uh, mothers carrying children in their womb, and there's some prediction that maybe there's a mental or a physical disability that might result once that child is born. Uh, this doc, who's a friend of mine, uh, works in a network that does abortions and has even worked in a center that does abortions. So how does he deal with that? It's very hard. One thing he says is something along these lines. He would say to this kind of a mom, the law requires me and the standards of care in the state of New Mexico require me to let you know that you don't have to continue with the pregnancy. However, and here's another great word, however. However, as your physician I care about your baby. And notice that he uses the word baby. It's not a fetus. It's not a collection of cells. It's not analogous to some cyst that you excise to have better health. It's a baby. It's a human being. It's a person. So that's one of the things that my friend has to do. He tries his best to obey the laws, but will disobey them if he feels that it calls upon him to disobey God himself or scripture, what God clearly commands. This is a challenge because Christianity is not a reclusive faith, is it? We don't withdraw. We're not like monks in a monastery. We don't say, I reject the world and therefore I can't interact with it. It's the exact opposite. We're called upon to be a part of the world, to be in the marketplace, in the workplace, to roll our sleeves up and live and work and interact with hopefully not a handful, but dozens of people that don't know or love Christ. Christianity is a faith that engages with other people, not one that withdraws from them. All right, ready for the next section. So Titus, starting at verse 9 and going through verse 11. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, we would assume division based on these kind of things, like drawing people into genealogies or or secret things that'll give them better lives. After warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And what's the link of this with the previous passage? Well, there are two. There's the word unprofitable. We just got done reading about what is profitable, what's good practically speaking for men and women. Now we're going to read about what is worthless. Second, this still fits into the idea of interacting with the world. So there were religious myths, uh, not just the ones the Cretans believed in, but ones that the Jews believed in on the island of Crete. And this was inside the church at times and certainly outside the church. So there were lots of things, like this list, controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, 
that took place in the marketplace. And remember, the marketplace back in the first century is a real marketplace, meaning it was outdoors, some of it was under awning maybe. Um, the marketplace in our world tends to be social media when people talk about, oh, let's exchange some ideas in the marketplace. Uh, what they kind of mean is social media. Back then you went out into a market, a public square, and guess what you heard? Shouting, maybe whispering over there, a conversation in normal tones over here. You heard people breaching and people debating over everything under the sun. And that was what these Christians in the island of Crete interacted with. So I'm going to combine these things like controversies, genealogies, and I'm going to say that they're myths. And the command here is to avoid myths. So here's the, the next section in our outline. Avoid myths. And this is in the religious sphere of the world. Myths was actually a term used by Paul in chapter one of this book when he talked about Jewish myths. And I think that's what we're talking about here. In fact, this phrase um, about the law that occurs in verse nine elsewhere in the New Testament usually means the Jewish law. So the books of Moses. So here's what's going on. Keep this in mind. There are two myths going around on the island of Crete. One we would call the Cretan myths. These were the myths spread by the Greeks or the Gentiles, the non-Jews, the Cretans, who considered that their homeland. They traced their people back hundreds, maybe thousands of years. And we talked about what those were, things like Zeus came from Crete. But then there, were, or there was a second group of myths spread by Jewish people who couldn't trace their heritage back a thousand years. On the island of Crete, they had probably migrated there in the last one or 200 years. They would not have believed in Zeus or the gods and goddesses of Olympia, but they brought their own myths. Some of them were based on the Bible and some were not. So I'm going to try to give you an example of modern-day myths because we deal with the same thing. Hopefully, you'll recognize that in a minute. And, and by showing you some modern-day myths, try to show you what the Christians in Crete had to deal with and what Paul is saying, avoid. Don't get caught up hours on end with these kinds of things. So I'm going to give you a negative myth, which means that it's a myth someone is telling to try to get you against something. And I'm going to tell you a positive myth, which means a myth that someone is saying. The second one will actually be based on the Bible, but go beyond the Bible. The positive myth is be like me. Follow this story. Grab onto it. Use it. So here's the negative myth. My little qualifier for this is that it's not true. Um, this is what we call an urban legend. So you come across this on Facebook or on the web. People believe it to be true, and they're presenting it to you as truth, but I'm telling you in advance, this is not true. So here's story number one. In the late ages of the Roman Empire and through the Middle Ages, there was a group of priests and priestesses in Britain called Druids. Now, that's actually true so far, but we'll get to the untrue part in a minute. <laughs> These Druids hated Christians when Christianity came to Britain. They hated them so much, they persecuted them, tortured them, and even killed them. Here is one thing that the Druids did to persecute Christians. They would kidnap whole families of Christians, adults and children, 
and they would bind their hands behind their backs. Then they would take, these druids, a big cauldron and put either water or oil in the cauldron. They would build a big fire under it and bring the water or the oil to a boil. Then they'd take a little bucket of apples, they'd dump it in the cauldron, and they would order the Christians with their teeth, their hands are bound again, to bob for apples. If they could get an apple out with their teeth all the way out of the cauldron, they could go free. If not, they'd be killed. And if they refused to participate in this little game, they'd be killed too. So dozens, probably hundreds of Christians were killed by Druids. And those that made it, having grabbed an apple, came out with horrific third-degree burns and scars on their face for life. So end of the story. What's the point of the story? The point of the story is to say, you need to hate Halloween. You need to hate it with such a passion that you don't do anything. Don't even have a fall festival to sub in for Halloween because any activity with Halloween is an association with Satan worship and the Druids and Christians, your own people group, that were killed in centuries past. So you're actually participating in evil if you do anything to honor Halloween. Now, I don't believe what I just said, so remember the qualification here, okay? Um, but this is a story that's on the web and that you see from time and time, thankfully it's not very popular, on Facebook. I hardly ever research these things, but a friend of mine in Virginia posted this up on Facebook and I thought, I don't think that that's true, uh, but I'm gonna research it. Sure enough, there's not a shred of historical proof that the Druids did this. So again, what's the point of this? The point of it is to say, part of my identity is to be anti this cultural thing in our world. And you need to join me. If you don't, you're sinning. Maybe you're doing it unintentionally a little bit, but now that you've read my post, hopefully you'll see the light. And join me in my identity because this story is true. Well, it's not. Here's a second myth from um, our own day that is based in part on the Bible. And the Jewish myths did both of these kinds of stories I'm telling you. So here's a positive one. This is one that says, be like me. Don't be against something. About 15 years ago, a book came out about a prayer that a man named Jabez makes in the Bible. You'll find his prayer in the book of First Chronicles. It's a very short prayer. Part of that prayer is enlarge my territory or enlarge my boundaries. And I won't so much critique the book, but some websites that went well beyond the book. So there are websites still up today that say this. Here's what you need to do. And this is the key. This is the key to successful Christian life. Here's what you need to do. You need to pray the prayer of Jabez three times a day. And on the third day, of course, you'll always keep doing this, but on the third, every third day, send it to someone else. There's always that kicker, right? It's like a little evangelism of the myth. On the third day, send it to somebody else. And within three months, God will bless you materially and tangibly, not just spiritually. He'll bless you materially because you've prayed these words and there's some kind of magic or secret with this exact wording. Now, does the Bible say that all of us are to pray the prayer of Jabez three times a day? No. In fact, we'd have to study that context to see if that's a prayer we should pray at all. Not all prayers of the Bible are meant as models. Jesus prays model prayers, gives us a model prayer. Paul's prayers are 
models. The book of Psalms is a model. Not every prayer that, say, Jacob prays is a prayer we should pray. I can think of one prayer that Jacob prays where I think a couple verses are ungodly, where he's asking God for the wrong things. Uh, what Moses is doing and telling us about that prayer is just letting us look over his shoulder like we're reading his journal. Here's what Jacob prayed. There's no implication that you pray the same thing. So this is the kind of thing that happened in the first century. And Paul is saying, this is not good and it's not profitable and it's a waste of time. I think for two reasons he says that. One, it's not true. The Druids didn't do that. Don't pass that post along to somebody else unless you know that it's true. Maybe you'd have to know it's true and it's gonna be helpful and edifying for the other person, but don't pass along a post assuming that it's true. Don't exaggerate some prayer in the Bible so that what you're saying is untrue. So first, Paul would say it's not true. Second, I think more importantly, Paul would say you're adding to the cross of Christ or maybe he would say you're detracting from it. You're telling people there are secrets or genealogical lines of blood they need to look into or stories they need to attach themselves to by way of identity. And you're not talking about Christ, his work on the cross, his resurrected life, his promises, the teachings he made while he was here. You're detracting from the gospel or you're adding to it. So final section in the book of Titus Verses 12, let's read the last few verses. I'll read them for you is what I mean. When I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, this is Paul again speaking, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I've decided to spend the winter there. Um, do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack nothing and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works. So as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. I think that not be unfruitful means so that they're not lazy. Verse 15, all who are with me send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. We're going to call this last section final instructions. Paul uses both the openings of his letters and the closings to teach important things. So at first glance, these verses look like kind of throwaway verses, a little bit like, honey, can you pick up milk on your way home? Just some instructions at the end of his letter that don't really mean very much of anything. But there are some big things that Paul teaches here. Actually, six or seven things he teaches, I'm gonna cover maybe two or three. Let's look at verse, oh, the first verse here. Paul says he's at a place called Nicopolis. Let's look at where that is on a map. Nicopolis is on the west shore of Greece. If you can locate Crete, that's an island in the middle of the Mediterranean Sea. So Paul says, come join me. Where is Paul? He's north and west. He's also on a port city. So probably what Paul is doing is waiting for winter to pass. That's what he says to Titus, right? Come join me for the winter. Because in the spring, the, the shipping lanes open up again and the ships leave port and go about their business. So probably what Paul is doing is wanting to move west to do what? To plant a new church. That's what Paul is all about, church planting. And he probably wants Titus to come with him. So number one, what we see is Paul strategizing about himself. And then second, we see that Paul is strategizing about others. He's gonna send one of two guys 
Artemis or Tychicus to Titus, probably to relieve Titus, because Paul is saying to Titus, I want you to come join me. So there's a lot of neat church planting stuff going on in that one verse. Now let's look at verse 13. Do your best to speed Zenos the lawyer and Apollos on their way. See that they lack for nothing. This probably isn't a simple business trip for these two guys, especially since we read about Apollos elsewhere in the New Testament. Who is Apollos? He is a church planter, a leader, a speaker, an evangelist. So this is ministry stuff. We only read about Zenos here. We don't know anything more about him. Paul uses a Greek verb. We see it as send on their way, but it's one word in Greek, and it means send out equipped or supported. If there's any doubt, Paul emphasizes it further. And what he says at the end of verse 13 is this, see that they lack for nothing. So how would we at DSC or how do we apply this kind of idea? Well, the idea is when you send people out whether planting a church globally or locally, try as best you can to see that they don't lack for anything. So here's what we do at DSC. We, we don't send out 50 missionaries with a promise of $100 a month for each one of you 50. It might sound great. Wow, we've got 50 missionaries spread out all over the globe. But Paul would say, man, you're not sending them out equipped or supported if you're just giving them 100 bucks a month. What you're doing is making them go to dozens of other churches asking for other churches to support them for $100 a month. Rather, we send out four adults to North Africa and a whole bunch of kids. And we support six nationals in Guatemala, meaning not people that we've sent down there, but people that are already there that can do the work better than, than we can, frankly. And we either support these people for the full amount that they need financially or for a large portion. Portion For North Africa, it's the full amount. For Guatemala, it's a very significant portion that we support in terms of sending money down there. So what else is Paul saying? He's probably saying this. There are some things you can't control. Uh, will the people in North Africa or Guatemala face hardship? The answer is certainly yes. So why don't we try to, to support them with things we can control? What can we control? We can control finances. We can visit them. We can send care packages. We can communicate with them. We can pray for them. We can do all of what it means to be uh, in support and in care for uh, a couple or a single that is overseas, planting churches. So finally, verse 14, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and to not be unfruitful. Often in Paul's openings, I mentioned this briefly already, in his openings, he'll have a section where he, he gives a foreview, a, a preview of some important topic in the letter. So openings aren't small things either. Here he's doing the same thing in the closing. In the closing of this letter, Paul is repeating a main topic that he's addressed, which is the doing of good deeds. So two things to note about this final urging to have the people engage in good deeds or good works. Um, one is that it's something that they've got to learn. It's not natural. This is a baby church in Crete. It's probably less than a year old. 
And so Paul says they've got to learn to engage in good works or good deeds. Part of that would be they've got to unlearn these myths. Which myths? The Cretan ones, even if they've rejected the gods and goddesses of Crete, they still got that honor-shame stuff to deal with. And the Jewish myths, which say things like, I've got the key to your spiritual growth. Yeah, you know about the cross, that's fine, but I've got something in addition to that that you really, really need. So they've got to unlearn those myths. And then second, they've got to not hesitate when it comes to helping other people out. So your neighbor down the street needs whatever, six, seven, eight inches after a little bit of melt shoveled from the driveway. We don't ask questions like, what's in it for me? We step into that opportunity and engage that good deed. You know, I think if I asked Tom, this guy who shoveled my driveway years ago, I think if I asked him, why did you do that? I've never asked him that. It'd be a good question. Um, but I think if I asked him, why did you do that? I think this is what he'd say. I think he'd say, because God has been gracious to me. I do those kinds of things because of who God is and what God has done for me in Christ on the cross through his death and through his resurrection. Please bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Father, we're about to sing the labor of my hands cannot fulfill the law's demands. That is so true, and we've read that now in what you have inspired in Titus chapter 3, that it wasn't our own works of righteousness that brought salvation. It was your mercy. Thank you, Father, that there is a refuge, a rock, a hiding place, a hiding place cut into the rock for me, for all of us, for your people. A hiding place in the rock where we are saved from wrath, from the penalty of our sins, where we're saved from Satan and saved from hell. Father, we affirm to you that you and you alone must save. We don't save ourselves. We don't improve or better ourselves. We are dead without Christ. And thank you that we are alive with him. May we sing now of these truths. For Christ's glory, amen.